What's up, everybody? Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. Hope everybody out there is having a good week. A lot to talk about in the sports world. Going to talk to my buddy Todd Speedburner Robinson first. Talk a little hoops. NBA free agency. Kawhi Leonard spurns the Lakers and the Raptors to sign with the Clippers. We talk about that and what teams make good and bad moves. We also talk about Wimbledon. The big three, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic still riding as high as ever into the Wimbledon semifinals. Federer to play Nadal for the first time in 11 years at Wimbledon since their epic match, some say, is the greatest ever. We break all that down as well as the women's side. And then I'm going to talk to Jose Youngs of MMA Fighting about an insane UFC 239 card. A lot of violence, a lot of finishes. We break down all that and more. It's Todd Robinson followed by Jose Youngs. Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. All right, Money Mitch Effect, back to talk a little tennis, Wimbledon action, some NBA free agency news and notes with Todd Speedburner Robinson. Todd, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, been a little while. Good to be back, Mitch. We're getting ready for the semifinals of Wimbledon. That's got all the sports world talking because, once again, starting with the men's side, Todd, it's the big threes world. The rain's not ending anytime soon. Djokovic and Dolph Federer. Back into the semis with pretty much relative ease all the way through. Some sets were lost here or there, but just a dominant performance by the aging greats of the game. It is truly phenomenal, their domination. Um, I ran a few numbers. They are 1-2-3 in history in Grand Slam semis. They're 1-2-3 in history in Grand Slam finals. They're 1-2-3 in history in Grand Slam match wins. So it is, um, it's amazing. It's, it's the second straight final that the three of them have made the semis. The second straight, uh, straight uh, Grand Slam that they've made, that they've all made the semis. So, um, you know, and here we are. It's 2019. Fed is 38 in a month. Joker had his 32nd birthday already. Nadal is 33rd. But they are trucking along and looking good. Yeah, it's been it's been incredible. This run, especially at Wimbledon, all three of them each losing one set total in route to the final. We've seen each of their games really improve, Todd. I mean, that's look. I think the fact that these three are still at the top might not be crazy surprising given their dominance and, and how well they've been. But we would expect, as naturally as the course course in sports, at least I would expect, Todd, that. You'd start to see some slippage. They'd be holding on. The next generation might be pushing them, and, and they'd still be at the top, but kind of holding on and holding them off. It seems like they're getting better. All three of them look new and improved, and, and it seems like the, the gap is almost widening in a way. You just said exactly what I was going to say, the gap widening. It, the gap looks wider. By the way, this is Fed actually lost two sets today, and then right, he lost true. first one. True, yeah. Yeah, but um, no, the, the gap, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, Sitsipas and, and AZ, Alexander Zverev, you know, they're, you know they're, they're right there. It's like, no, they're not. They both lost in the first round. So it's a little disappointing, to be blunt, that they haven't really closed that gap. Um, it's, it's, there, there is a little bit of an indictment there with those guys, uh, with the next tier, which, you know, used to be Burditch, Sanga, Del Potro, Ferrer. That used to be the next tier with Warenka. Now the next tier seems to be these guys, but they're, but at least that next tier, you look, you look throughout their careers, Sanga, Burditch, those guys, Del Potro. Kanish as well. A lot of Grand Slam quarterfinals, tons of them, uh, over a dozen for all of them, you know, in, in five or six slam semis. And right now for this net, for this young next tier, they don't look to have that consistency. It'll be interesting to see how the landscape shakes out when these three are finally done. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. We don't know when that's going to be. It might not be for a while. It's leading to Djokovic taking on Batista Agut. Just a great story for Batista Agut. I think we're all ready to kind of write his obituary because he plays Djokovic. But this is a guy with a great all-around game that has made the semis at Wimbledon, which I know a lot of people didn't think it would be possible. His reward is Djokovic, which is a tall task for anyone in the history of the game. But a good story there. And then Federer Nadal is the other semi. First time since that epic match 11 years ago that they've met at a Wimbledon. So... You're getting what you asked for. It's Federer and Adult Wimbledon for the first time in 11 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, the tennis world is certainly a buzz with that matchup. Looks like a coin toss. I actually thought that the odds makers would make 
Fed a little bit of a favorite, and they actually did the opposite. They made Nadal a Ooh. little bit of a favorite. Mm. I saw a minus 135 and a plus 105 to Fed. I mean, Fed, you know, for, for a guy who's almost 38, he was picking up these short hop balls from Kanish and playing defense against Kanish that was just, you know, you're like, what? You're 38? Like, huh? You know, I mean, it's one thing to still have a great serve and, you know, and a rocket forehand or whatever, but to be running around and playing defense the way he was today, it's amazing. And, and that match should be, you know, Nadal also looks very good uh, drubbing Sammy Q. But uh, that match should be amazing. And, of course, yeah, Joker looks like um, kind of a cruiser into the final. But, you know, RBA did beat him twice this year, early on uh, in an Aussie tune-up. And then um, either either the Desert or Miami, I forget which master. Yeah, he beat yeah, him in Miami. Yeah. And that was another weird match that involved rain. The elements seemed to be Djokovic's only weakness this year. But... He did beat him twice. It's going to be tough to beat him again, especially in best of five. I get Nadal being a slight favorite. I get Nadal being a slight favorite because of how well he's played recently, but the way Fed plays on this surface, I don't know. I think that's worth uh, exploring if you're a betting man out there. But uh, what we got, we got what we wanted again. We got the big four or three of the big four making uh, making their moves again. Todd Robinson here on the Money Mitch Effect. I do want to mention the women's side really quick. Because we're we're in another major semifinal that has, Todd, as you would know, some parity to it. And I just want to point out the yeah. fact that you could look, I know you're a statistician yourself, at the last you know six to eight majors, just look at the different names, look at the amount of unseeded players that have made a semifinal. It's almost the most consistent thing about the sport is that you'll find someone new, probably unseeded, making a semifinal. It is, and it's really... To be honest, it's a little rough on the sport itself. It's nice that Halep has made the semis, kind of like done done very well, gotten where she's supposed to get, and she's a, a pretty decent favorite to win, to, to, to make the final, probably against Serena, who's a pretty big favorite over uh, Spitzova. Vitalina, this is her first Grand Slam semi, which, um, you know, she's been around the top five now, what, maybe two years plus or so. So nice to see her. I think it's very disappointing that Carolina Pliskova lost that 13-11 third set against, what was it, Muchova, Mukova? You know, Serena, and by the way, I'm a little surprised. She played so little this year, gotten hurt so often, looked a little slower, maybe a little heavy. But here she is. She's in a semi. She's got Strichova, pretty, she's a minus 390. I think back in her prime, she'd probably be minus 800 in this match. But, um, you know, she's she's taking advantage of the fact that these girls really can't find consistency. Yeah, I mean, give all props to Serena. She's battled to get here. The draw has opened up for her with some big seats going down to some not big players. Osaka, as you mentioned, and and other names like Kerber, the defending champ, going out, Pliskova, to, to unseated players. But... I think at the end of the day, there is something about this tournament where it does bring out the veterans. You've got shorter points, as we mentioned, for those who, who don't really follow as much. Serena can have success on here. It was nice to see Halep. This is, I think, the second straight year, Todd, that the top five seeds, top four or five seeds were all out before they got to the quarterfinals, which is just insane. Yeah, and I forget which slam it was. I think it might have been last year, one of them, where I think all top 10 women were gone by, like, the quarters. Like, it was just it was just a bizarre. And it just it makes it, from a business point of view, it's so hard to market the sport when fans, they can't get behind a consistent top five. They can't get behind any consistent rivalries because it's, like, fresh and new. You know, Ash Barty, something that the final and wins the French and then she gets upset here it's just it's 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 tough as a for the WTA and the people in the WTA offices but it is interesting for fans like you and I and our listeners who who like to follow the sport and and see what surprises are coming up next well I'm looking at that Spitalina help match I think it's a great opportunity for for both careers from a simple perspective Todd, that if you have Simona Halep win and she can go on and win Wimbledon, she becomes a two-time major winner. 
she wins on two different surfaces. The Hall of Fame resume, which is pretty much complete, is then set in stone. Svitolina has a chance to break through. She's maybe next up on that list. I mean, ever, ever since Halpin was the Aki one, you think about some of the accomplished players. It could be a chance for Svitolina. And then Strakova, Serena. I mean, Serena is the legendary figure. I, I don't know if I ever can recall an older debut semifinalist on the women's side than Strakova. First time I'm getting here, 29, I think. Oh, she's 29. Okay, I thought she might be in her 30s by now. But, yeah, that is certainly the out-of-left-field semifinalist. Um, at least Serena, Svitolina, and Halep have all spent a good chunk of their careers in the top five. No, you're right, Todd. Um, she is 33 now. I thought she was younger. You're right. That is okay. 33. Wow. <laughs> yes, exactly. So so there you go. That's a really surprise old, you know. I think Isner finally made the semis last year, and he had just turned 33 so Isner was a that's a pretty old semifinal debut on the men's side a year ago here well it should be good to see Todd Robinson here on the money Mitch effect before we get to some other topics the story that captivated everybody at Wimbledon was Coco Goff and uh, we've been more privy than most with this story Todd working in tennis just 15 years old makes the fourth round lose to a Grand Slam champion former number one in Simona Halep but Try to put into perspective, maybe for people that don't deal with the day-to-day of tennis, just how crazy impressive this is a 15-year-old making the fourth round in her first main draw ever at a Grand Slam. Totally. Two big things. Number one, I had to pull ISO replays from her junior French Open final, where she won just a year ago, and she did impress me. And what really impressed me was you know, she was a, a little on the taller side for just a 14-year-old at the time, literally like barely turned 14. Her birthday's in March. And she moved really well for a young, you know, kind of long-legged girl who's probably still growing. You figured there'd be that after, but, but she moved really well. She had the power. She's nice stroke. Um, so you kind of knew like, wow, this girl's special. Just, just the fact that she's 14 and she's hoisting that trophy. And then this year, in that that comeback in the third round against uh, Herzog. Now, I'm calling it, and I'm older than you and probably older than a lot of our listeners. I, I started watching tennis when Borg was uh, bagging Wimbledon titles back yeah. in the late 70s. And I think that's the greatest comeback I've ever seen in my life, just because her age, 15, the stage, Wimbledon, center court, third round, by then, you know, the media was a buzz and all eyes were watching her. And then, of course, the third big thing was the hole she was in, which was down 3-6-2-5 match point and needed that little nifty slice sidewinder backhand to, to nick the line and keep her alive on that match point. Uh, I, I just think, you know, it wasn't the highest quality tennis. I've never seen so much slicing in my life, especially on the forehand side in that match. But the fact that she just hung tough, wanted to compete, do and did what it took to just hang tough, and and she kind of she she had the sense to know when Herzog was kind of feeling the tension, and hey, just get these balls in, don't overhit. A really smart, intelligent match um, to go along with really what's a beautiful backhand and a powerful serve. She clearly needs to work a bit on that forehand, but um, yeah, that's it, a heck of a story. And I mean, she's up there on the all-time list of youngest to do this, that, and whatever at slams, along with names like Andrea Yeager and Tracy Austin, um, Martina Hingis, girls like that. So it, it's quite impressive what she's um, what she's done and what she probably will be doing for the next 15 years on tour. Yeah, and just to reiterate what you said, Todd, it wasn't the best played match, clearly, the Hercog match, but showing that resolve, that willingness to fight and to come up big in, in big moments at 15 just blew all of us away. It went from being, uh, oh, this is going to be a nice run, she loses in the third round, to her figuring, figuring out a way to win the match and was up a break in the third, blew that, came back. I mean, it was just it was great stuff. Beating Venus, a legend exactly. in her first match was great, too. She's only 15, which doesn't guarantee anything, but it sets her up way better 
than most people on planet Earth that want to play tennis to be this good at 15. So it was a great story. It's good to see some new blood coming into the game. Uh, and I don't think she's done growing, Todd. I mean, five, nine and a half. This could be a six-footer by the time she she gets to 18, 19 years old. Yeah, I, I think ideally maybe another inch. She's so speedy. You don't want her to lose any of that because, man, some of the guests, I will say – like you, like we both agreed, not the highest quality tennis, but but some of the defense she played, you know, she she scrambles down some balls. It's pretty amazing, and I, I I'd hate to see her grow too tall and, and lose some of that agility and court speed. But um, no matter how you slice it, um, you know her and Isimova, and there's actually a lot of youngsters, 19, 20, and 21 on the women's tour that um, it, it bodes well so long as. Once they all reach top 10 or whatever, or, or the handful of them that do, as long as they can find consistency and a steady hunger that the Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys of the world don't seem to have a grip on. Well said. I think it's going to be fun to see how this develops. A lot of good talent on the women's side coming up young and, and not really having the problem that the men's game have being uh, pushed down by the big three. Todd, before we uh, before we wrap this up, we have to talk hoops because that's another passion of yours. And we haven't talked in a while about that. And it seems like a lot has changed. I feel like a good maybe about a third of last year's All-Stars are on different teams right now. You've been following basketball for a long, long time. Can you ever remember the league being as transient as it is right now among the top players with the team switching, some teaming up as well, and just basically – not committing to long terms in, in cities and being franchise players. Oh yeah, you don't have to be a longtime fan to have seen such a change in kind of the way free agency goes just from ten years ago, just really even five or six years ago, to now that the players and the agents have such power and it's almost like a rule and law that if you're, you know, getting older and you haven't, you know, competed for a title, it is your right to, and you must be, you know, moved to a team that is in the hunt or create a super team with two or three other guys. So I'm not crazy about that. I think you look at the way the Lakers have suddenly gone from the laughing stock three months ago to, Literally, they were the, the the favorite to win the title. Um, and then when Kawhi announced, I think they have like parity maybe with, with one or two other teams to win the title. But it's it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting for fans in that you don't have to lose faith because, you know, 12 months later, you can go from outhouse to penthouse. But I think the organic teams are still, I think fans miss a bit of that organic growth of teams the way that you draft a few young guys they grow together they blossom and suddenly they're competing with the upper echelon but it's so interesting what was your initial reaction to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George because it broke within like minutes that they were going to go to the Clippers because I feel like most definitely most pundits were wrong or, or off on this Kawhi kept it close to the vest and then bam Friday night just had an earthquake in LA and then here comes round two, Kawhi and Paul George are going to the Clippers, not the Lakers. Right, an NBA earthquake, yes. Um, good, good, good call there. I'll tell you what, I, I never really saw him choosing to play with LeBron. I just think the spotlight, the, the personalities are so different. Here's a guy who has two rings already with two different teams. Is he that so desperate for a ring that he wants to play with someone who it never, and it's not like I've met either one of them, but you know, seemingly totally different personalities. So it didn't make much sense to me that he would just want to saddle up with, you know, LBJ and AD, even though it would be awfully tempting to then once LeBron is gone, him and AD about the same age, I think AD might be a year or two younger or something, but you know, they could really, kind of cruise together and, and assemble various pieces around them to, to really put a stranglehold on the league. But uh, it was surprising, but it was really a very pleasant surprise. And I think having the intra-city rivalry for us here in L.A. and for the whole, um, the whole league itself is going to be quite interesting and better for the league, for sure. Absolutely. That not going to the Lakers 
going to the Clippers, even if you would have stayed in Toronto, makes the league as as wide open as it's been in five, six years at least. You've got now 10 to 12 franchises that realistically think that they can contend and some that maybe are a move away from really shoring that up. I agree with you. Kawhi going to LeBron's team, even if it is a short-term arrangement before the keys are handed over, would seem a little awkward. Kawhi's a competitor. I think that matters. And and uh, look, I mean, the Paul George trade, the other side of this, OKC got a got an enormous haul to get all those draft picks and players for Paul George. And I understand why the Clippers do it, Todd, because this is their window. This is their chance. You have a chance to pair up prime Paul George and Kawhi. You have to make that deal. Jerry West just, just pulling another string and making it happen. And I think, you know, for the Thunder, it's all going to be about what to do with Westbrook now. It, it, he's going to be traded because you have to move on. The timeline just got dragged back about five years by that point, he'll be washed up and probably ready to move out of the league. So where Russ goes is the other big storyline here. But depending on that, I think OKC can set themselves up for the future and being the next version of the Sixers in that way. No doubt. Um, an interesting thing with moving Russ is his contract. The back end of that might get a, a little bit scary for uh, a guy who's so reliant on pure athleticism and energy. He's gotten, you know... A, few injuries here and there and also he's shown that when push comes to shove he, he, he kind of tends to forget that he has four other teammates who can help him on the court and he gets a little tunnel vision with him the ball and the basket but um yeah it, it'll be interesting probably likely to be moved and i think you know on the periphery you know outside of the lakers Toronto, the Clippers, and now OKC with, you know, their plethora of draft picks and young assets. There's a few other teams that uh, made some interesting off-season moves as well. Yeah, I know you really like Utah. I think they're they're a team that's that's done a lot with Conley and with some of the other pieces that they added. Uh, Bogdanovich, right? He's on Utah as well. Is that right? Bogdanovich as well as TJ Warren, a kind of underrated, kind of like a perfect sixth-man instant offense off the bench guy. Bogo really um, at Indy really kind of uh, emerged this last uh, 2018-2019 season and um, should be a big help. But but Indy is yet another team. You know, they added Jeremy Lamb as well as Brogdon uh, to, to their lineup to, to fill some of the holes. They also lost Darren Collison to that surprising retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of out of nowhere. He certainly had, you know, three or four more years. And, and these days, the way that the money is in the NBA, it's amazing that he, he said no to it. So hats off to him. The man of principle yeah. wants to do different things with his right. life. I like Denver adding Jeremy Grant. I think they're going to be a good regular season team. I think it should be worth pointing out that Lakers and Clippers, Todd, probably not going to be in a rush. And obviously you can throw the Warriors in there. But to get the one seed, I just don't know if Kawhi's going to play a full slate of games for, for obvious precautionary reasons. Same with an aging LeBron James and Davis coming off of injuries. I just don't know if the L.A. teams are going to chase the one seed. You uh, you are exactly right on it. I, um, I email very consistently with two friends of mine, NBA Sharpies, really. Uh, one of them works in the uh, gambling world, and... One of them brought up that exact point that number one, Denver's probably going to get the number one seed, he thinks. And number two, the, what do they call it, uh, load management now mm-hmm. um, uh, will be a major factor with, with the two LA teams. I do think, um, and when he brought this up, my reply to the two of them was I think Denver is so deep now, especially with that Jeremy Grant addition, and I like his game. Um, I, I think they, they're really in a position to trade a couple of these uh, nice uh, depth pieces that they have for maybe yet another big name to go alongside Jokic um, and Jamal Murray. Like if, if they can kind of get a third big wheel there because they just have so many deep pieces, you know, Barton and, and others, um, and now Grant, um, just, to, just to kind of be more formidable. Uh, against the big boppers from L.A. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the chase in the West is going to be good. The East is what I wanted to, to kind of wrap up this discussion on. We know Durant and Kyrie went to the Nets. They're a little bit away. 
Obviously, we'll see how they gel in a year when, when Durant comes back, but that's a long-term play as well. The East is going to be fascinating because now no Kawhi Leonard. I think Milwaukee got a little worse roster-wise. Giannis could continue to improve, and, and maybe the team gets better, but they don't have the depth they did last year without Brogdon. And the Sixers I'm just fascinated by because I'm not convinced on this team in general. I'm more sour on them than most. A lot of talent there, a lot of opportunities there. But, Todd, what's going to be the, the end result with uh, with this lineup and this meshing of players bringing in Al Horford, losing some shooting? How do you feel about the Sixers? You know, yeah, with the Sixers, they, they didn't address their outside shooting. You know, they had J.J. Redick, one of maybe the top three or four outside shooters in the league. They lost him. And, you know, Horford's a nice addition. I love Josh Richardson. He He's, you know, he's a badass, if I can say that on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Go feel free, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, in terms of steady outside shooting, you know, that's probably something that, you know, during the season they're going to have to look to to shore up. But, you know, they've got a, they've got a pretty deep lineup. And, and Simmons, my God, you know, it's one thing to not, you know, be formidable from – three-point land, but you've got to be comfortable making a 16-17 footer in this league. And so, you know, Ben's got to work on, on that. And, um, you know, and, and you know, Josh Richardson will throw up some threes. I, I don't know what his career percentages is, but I don't think he's ever shot 35 or 36% from Trey in any one season. Trey land. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, Miami now has Jimmy Butler. Uh, they got rid of Whiteside. He moved to the Western Conference in Portland. And they've got, you know, Bam Adebayo is really emerging in Miami. So it'll be interesting to see how Bam and Butler go together. Uh, and the, the other thing is, now you mentioned the, the Nets. I, you know, once KD blew that Achilles, all you got to do is just look at his birth certificate and do some math. And, you know, he's going to be 32 years old by the time the 2020-2021 season starts, which is basically when you're hoping that he's at least, you know, probably not 100%. I don't know if anybody's ever 100% mm-hmm. after a blown Achilles, but 90 95%, and all of a sudden he's 32, and that'll be the second year of a basically, what, $40 million a year deal. It's that, that's crazy just... to think about, yeah. I, I And I, I think that's where you got to – taper expectations plus the way Kyrie handled his business in Boston I don't think anyone's looking at him as a natural leader uh, the Celtics I think will be better but with Kemba sliding in but I don't think they have maybe the weaponry to compete with the Milwaukee's and, and Phillies so far in the playoff picture uh, unless guys make that leap in Tatum in Jalen Brown well Hayward another guy who maybe won't ever get back to 100% looked better yeah he and also Boston, also with Boston, for years now, ever since they kind of got real good and drafted wisely, they've lacked that athletic, tall middle to really shore up the defense and block some shots, and they still really haven't mm-hmm. addressed that. Now, um, now, Todd, you also don't, you're also not as negative, is that right, on the Knicks? You don't think they're as bad and as terrible exactly. as some people are making them out? Because they made, Randall little- signing was good. Uh one thing to whiff on every big name, I think the problem there, Todd, was that they whiffed on big names when they said that was the plan. But yeah, to to, to your point, I mean they're not they're not going to be the worst team in the league, and they're still depending on what moves get made down the road. You mentioned at the beginning of this, the Lakers were a laughing stock last year. Look at how quickly it can change. Totally, and you look, you know, they signed Randall is a great signing. You know, he he's kind of. He's kind of like a smaller, poor man's Chris Webber. You know, he's a forward who can dribble the ball, do some things, pass the ball nicely. I, I think Webber's, you know, maybe a little better in, in all areas because he's a little taller, he's a little more athletic, maybe a little better passer. I, I was a huge Chris Webber fan. But, um, you know, Randall's a nice ball player. R.J. Barrett is, you know, he showed a lot. He had, he had some pretty gaudy stats at Duke, so... You know, his game looks to be, you know, able to translate pretty decently uh, for the NBA. And they have, they've got Alfred Payton, who, you know, not much of a shooter, but um, to me, usually you can find shooters. You know, you get that one-dimensional 3-and-D kind of guy or whatever, or even just a shooter who you hide him on defense or whatever and maybe only play him 15, 20 minutes at night. 
But, um, you know, they got Elsa Payton, they got Dennis Smith Jr., they acquired Bobby Portis, who's pretty productive power forward. Just don't they fight him in practice. <laughs> well, he's just don't, don't, yeah, just... <laughs> Miritich learned that the hard way. Yeah, he ran to um, Europe. He's not coming back. <laughs> I was going to say, so strange. He flew to Europe. But um, you know, there's a lot of assets in Mitchell Robinson, their big center that they drafted a year ago. So the Knicks have a future. They, they And they got Kevin Knox, who they drafted a year ago. So if I'm the Knicks, I'm, we talk about organic growth, and that's a very organic team. There's a lot of guys they drafted or young guys that they traded for who haven't emerged yet, like a Dennis Smith, maybe a Bobby Portis. So, you know, Randall, who is emerging. By the way, if you look at all the Laker draft picks that they drafted and paying the price for centering their whole organization around Kobe for the last three or four years of his career all those there is just a boatload of talent that they drafted and then scattered to the you know far and wide throughout the league um yeah I think Kuzma's like the last piece of that they're holding on to from from all that it's gonna be it's gonna be a a very jazzy NBA season I will tell you that because the offseason was unlike anything we've seen recently and just to put a bow on this Todd Kawhi and LeBron competitors to the end main rivals now both in the same building trying to be i think the first they're trying to be the first player each to win three finals mvps with three different franchises yes and um if you're going to ask me to make a call i can't <laughs> it's close and there is there is reason to believe that both teams will be in the title hunt these next three to five years that's i'm giving that the lebron window age-wise but to say who's better now I'm with you. We have to see. It's going to be fun to watch. I'll tell you what. The, the, the Clippers have depth on the defensively. They have better depth. They have a lot of guys like Patrick Beverly, Montrez Harrell, uh, the two guys they acquired. They've got a lot of depth in defense. The Lakers really have one guy, A.D., LeBron. God, these, there was times last year when he really just, ole, go to the basket. So uh, Clippers will be a little better on defense, but yeah, that'll be very interesting to see which one of them, uh, assuming that it's going to be one of them that does emerge from the West. Can't wait. Can't wait. Todd Robinson, this was fun. We'll, uh, we'll be catching up soon sometime. It won't be as long a break next time, but thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect and talking some sports. Sounds good. Always good to chat, Money Mitch. All right, huge thanks to Todd Robinson for coming on the show. Always good to chat with the speed burner. You can uh, definitely count on him to bring some stats and, and know what he's talking about, especially in the tennis world. Big thanks to him. All right, now we're going to talk to Jose Young's UFC 239 was amazing. Jose writes for MMAfighting.com, and he's got a lot to say about an insane card that saw John Jones win his first split decision of his career. He's 25-1-1, but... Never had to had to sweat it out like he did. We break down that fight. Amanda Nunez, clearly the best female fighter ever, destroys Holly Holm. The Masvidal Askren flying knee finish from Masvidal five seconds into the fight, and some other fights we're looking forward to as well. It's Jose Young's of MMA fighting now here on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect. We're talking MMA, so you know who I had to bring on from MMA fighting. Friend of the show, longtime guest, Jose Youngs. Jose, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Anytime, man. I figured as soon as UFC 239 was over, it was only a matter of time before Money Mitch hit me up. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. That's a, that's a good instinct you have there. Um, first thought on UFC 239. I know you've been around it for a while, this sport, these fight cards. For a big-time card with all this talent, I'd have to think a while back of one top to bottom being this violent. Like, there was some brutal, brutal finishes on this card. I'd have to say UFC 189 and UFC 199. I mean, so yeah, we're going makes, back 40, you know, 40 to 50. <laughs> so it makes sense that UFC 239 was just as uh, violent. UFC 189 obviously had uh, Mendez, McGregor, and Lawler, McDonald, uh, Bermudez, Stevens, 
Man, Almeida Pickett. So they had two flying knee knockouts and yeah. neither one bonuses. So that that should tell you what you need to know on that one. Then 199 had uh, the Bisbing Rockhold was the main event. That was that first second knockout. But then also had uh, Hector Lombard lost to Dan Henderson. Dustin Poirier knocked out Bobby Green. Uh, Brian Ortega knocked out Clay Guida. And then what people don't talk about is uh, Marco Polo Reyes on the very first fight of the night when fight of the night. So the, the usually the undercard guys don't get bonuses. That should show you how crazy that fight was. So, yeah, it's been a while. but well, So I'd say 189, 199, UFC 239 are the ones that come to mind. Well, you're right, and and fights were those those cards were just incredible as well. I just thought this one, uh, especially for a lot of the hype going into it, really did live up. It was a fun card. You saw finishes in three of the five three of the five fights. Uh, the other two were uh, were very dramatic as well. Well, I should say one wasn't dramatic, but we'll get to that in a second. But as far as the undercards went. What stood out to you, Jose? It was good to see Claudia get another uh, unanimous decision win and maybe put herself in the strawweight picture again, call out Ioana. But other fights as well, what stood out in the preliminary card? Well, I, I would say Arnold Allen winning was he he was one of the bigger winners of the night. Uh, I think he was he's like twenty four or twenty five. I he beat he beat Gilbert Melendez, former strike force champion, uh former UFC uh title challenger and I remember speaking with Arnold before, and I looked at his record, and he was 0-0. He had not even made his pro debut when Gilbert Melendez was getting ready to fight for the UFC championship. And I go, what is your earliest memory? And he said he remembered Gilbert Melendez fighting when he was 14 and 15. And now they're (laughs) fighting at UFC 239. It was his first fight in America, too, and he dominated Gilbert. Uh, Gilbert's uh, career is obviously on the, the... T- tailing off if, if 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 that was his last fight i wouldn't be surprised uh but arnold allen and Ed- edmund shabazian was on the fight pass prelims he ran through jack marshman jack marshman had like 30 something pro fights edmund shabazian had um has maybe 10 or 11 and uh, of those 10 or 11 nine or 10 are finishes and they're all on the first round so the theme of the prelims was uh youth uh kind of rising to the occasion for sure yeah, it really was, uh, and and I would also throw in there one of my favorite fights early was seeing the knockout uh, by Song just run through with that punch. Song Yadong, yeah. yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> I had to throw that in there because little did we know, but that set the tone for a violent night. But there was there was some fun fights as well. The first fight on the main card, I kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, Jose, with Michael Chiesa winning uh, in a dominant fashion, 30-26 in a three-round fight. And just to think about scoring-wise, that means there's a 10-8 round in there. Uh, he had lost a couple fights to some some really, some really talented opponents, Lee and Pettis both hit him, but he's won his last two. What does that win mean? Does that get him on track for some things in this welterweight division? Well, yeah, I mean, you said it. His loss to Pettis and his loss to Kevin Lee were both at lightweight. Uh, and then he jumped up to welterweight because he was – He's a he's tall man. He's like six one, and he's kind of one fifty five, and he was struggling every time. And I remember one year ago, uh, he said that his fight against Anthony Pettis was the last time he'd ever fight at lightweight because it was just too rough to make the cut. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if it gets him on track any closer to a title shot because uh, the welterweight division is is obviously the top of its murky as it is. But it's a win over Diego Sanchez still means something in twenty nineteen, which is a whole nother story. So it's uh. It's 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 good that Michael Chiesa finally got a, uh, a, a, a has a win streak again, if you would. Yeah, I remember he was. I mean, for the casual fan out there, missed his weight cut during the McGregor Khabib incident because well, he was cut by the bus, and there was that. Whole yeah, thing. he got he was on the bus, and when the dolly was thrown through the window, it, it gashed his face open, so he missed out. A lot of unfortunate mm-hmm. situations going on for Michael Chiesa, not not his fault. And uh, he said the last year was the roughest year of his life. Uh, especially after that Anthony Pettis fight, so it's it's good to see him smiling again. He kind of, even after, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, last year two twenty six, he was talking a lot of trash on Anthony Pettis, which it's it, which is weird because Michael Case has never really been one of those guys, and he said he was trying to be someone he wasn't, trying to hype and sell a fight, and it just seems like he's having fun again. So it's it's good to see him not only win but uh, to have fun and enjoy himself in the UFC. Certainly was Jose Young's here on the Money Mitch Effect talking UFC 239, uh, that white heavyweight title fight that was uh, <laughs> the, the fourth, <laughs> fourth on the slate, man. Uh, we'll get lost in the shuffle, I feel like, 
with the other things that happened after this fight, the three the three big time fights that were in front of it. But I don't think people understand, or I don't think people will forget that saw it, just how violent the finish was. That saw uh, Jan Blachowicz uh, take out Luke Rockhold with that violent KO and finish him mercilessly on the ground. And and we can get into the Rockhold side in a second, but this Polish dude Jose is a big boy, and I was surprised that he he was a light heavyweight when I was watching him fight. To be honest with you, but this is somebody that's a bad dude that has a lot of fights that lost to Santos, but. He has a lot of power in his punches, and that finish was brutal. Yeah, it's the kind of performance he needs. Uh, he needed in the UFC is his. his he, some of his wins haven't been the most exciting, or they have been, but there's they've always been overshadowed. Uh, and he has losses to Gustafson, like you said, he lost to to Santos. But then his two fights against Jimmy Manoa, uh, they weren't the greatest. Uh, even even when he loses, they weren't always the most exciting fights outside of that. Uh, uh, Tiago Santos fight, but every fight against Tiago Santos is exciting unless he gets debilitatingly hurt. Um, mm-hmm. So it was good. To, it was good to see him finally kind of get the shine because uh, all week Luke Rockhold, we spoke to him. He was very dismissive of Jan's talents and skills. Didn't really look at him as a vile challenger. Uh, and after another left hook knocked out Luke Rockhold, it, it's I don't like seeing Luke Rockhold like that break his jaw because he broke his jaw pretty badly. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he called it a career. If I was his manager, I'd probably advise it. But at the end of the day, that's up to him. Um, but its I'm not happy Luke got knocked out. I'm just happy that uh, Jan's finally getting the recognition he's deserved for a while. Right. Luke came into this, this fight, and really you can even argue this division, talking a lot about how he was as good as anybody, and even, even going up to the top of the ladder, throwing some stuff at Jones, which is to be expected given their camp's histories. But... Uh, Jan getting the win and doing it in the way that he did was was great for Jan. What did you think of Rockhold before we talk about you know going forward his career? Him fighting at light heavyweight this debut for me on the outside he didn't look like he was as fluid as he was putting on that extra weight. What did you think of him as fighting at light heavyweight being a little bigger? I mean it made sense for his career. He's always looked pretty rough cutting to 185. I mean if you look at his his weigh-ins against. Weidman, Bisbing, Romero, and all that. He's not. He's pretty sucked out. I mean, he's pretty gaunt and everything. Uh, obviously, he's fighting guys his size, but the jump from 185 to 205 is too big, man. They need a 195 yeah. weight class. People keep talking about 165, but they need a 195 pound weight class. Um, uh, in terms of fluidity and stuff, it's hard to say. He did have some pretty bad uh, shin injuries over the years. Uh, he, and I, I mean, I spoke with Dustin Poirier when he was in, uh, Atlanta before he fought Max Holloway. And I asked him how long it took for him to, how would I phrase this? Uh, feel like an actual lightweight because he spent so much time at featherweight. I go, how many fights did it take for you to feel like a real lightweight rather than just a blown up featherweight or featherweight, just not cutting weight. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So instead of in Rockhold's like, oh, I'm a. I'm a 205er now. I'm not a 185er that's just showing up. Like, I'm 205. I don't care what he does. So I, I, I it, the fight was so quick. Uh, Jan's obviously way stronger than anyone Rockhold has fought inside the octagon. He obviously cuts a lot of weight. So again, he needs he needs uh, he needs a 195 pound weight class if he, if he fights again, or he needs a tune up fight at 205 because there's a lot of 185ers moving up like Anthony Smith, Thiago Santos, Chris Weidman's moving up. So there's a lot of middleweights making the jump up to 205. He just he needs either a tune-up fighter or to go back down to 185. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe he just waited a little too long with the damage he has and, and, and at this point in his career to make that transition where I don't know if he has those number of fights to feel like a quote-unquote real you know light heavyweight. But tough to see him you know get his jaw broken like that. Props to Jan on that win. All right, we got to talk about the welterweight fight, Masvidal and Askren. Um, did you did you think this was possible? Did you think a flying knee five seconds in was a plausible scenario, given everything you know about this fight on paper, off of it, trash talk, the way they fight? Was Masvidal flying knee quickest fast, quickest knockout in UFC history? Was that even on the radar of your mind and your thoughts? 
Not a five-second knockout, no. But I knew if Rock, if if all week I said it's either going to be Askren by decision or Masvidal by knockout. He's one of those fighters that's like kill or be killed type mm-hmm. of guy. He doesn't. Oh, we yeah. spoke to him and he's like, I don't even like going to a decision. Like I, that's not about me. I'm not a point fighter. I'm not trying to ride out and play it safe. I want to go in there and 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 trade leather. So uh, if if he was going to win it being by knockout, but if you if anyone claims they predicted a five-second <laughs> flying knee knockouts, they're liars. That was it. Was like two seconds, right? Like we can say, yeah, he was 100%. done the second he hit the ground. Um, I thought Masvidal is pretty funny and candid. I and, and and just for everybody out there listening, I'm not a huge huge crazy fan of of all the trash talk post knockout, but I get it. Like it's a heated moment. Like you're, I'm not gonna judge an athlete in that moment when they're fighting and and they're having that initial reaction. But uh, these clearly don't like each other. Props to Askren for how he handled it. It was smart. I mean, it's not. It's one thing to watch this from the outside and say, "Look, he hit. A, he went for a flying knee, knocked it out, came away successful." But Askren's a wrestler. He likes to shoot. He likes to go down, head to the crotch, as Masvidal said. It's a smart tactic, and it worked out as beautiful as you could possibly imagine. Yeah, I mean, and if you if you follow uh, Mike Brown, uh, his, his his Jorge Masvidal's coach over at ATT's former WEC champion too. He posted a video and it was like 48 hours. It was shot 48 hours before the actual fight. And right out of the sparring session, Masvidal sprints forward with a flying knee. So it's not, it's something they had, it's something they planned. It's not something that he just did on the fly. Beautiful game planning, uh, super intelligent. Uh, And I will say, this is the biggest star making performance I have ever seen since Nate Diaz submitted Conor McGregor. I mean, Conor and Nate. I mean, Connor, I mean, uh, Masvidal and Nate are very similar in terms of their uh, attitude and fighting style where they're just kill or be killed type of guys and they know their worth. Um, and I don't really consider it trash talking or and they don't because they don't really care about selling a fight or building their brand or whatever. That's just them. Like what you're seeing is 100 percent authentic and people gravitate towards that. So, yeah, like you said, Masvidal was like celebrating and talking all that trash at the end. But that's that's him, man. Uh, he didn't. He really didn't like Ben Askren, and Ben Askren didn't like him. And Ben Askren himself says, "I probably deserve all this." So, uh, Masvidal is a, is a superstar now, and and he, he's finally getting the recognition he deserves. I think Askren. I know it's his first loss. I think he'll be okay. Hundred percent. I, I don't think you take like look at the way Woodley lost. That's a little different. Where Woodley lost to Usman and got completely worked for five rounds. Askren has something now. Has a loss on his record to look at and say, okay. This is where we can get better, and we see a lot of fighters, a lot of champion-level fighters re- get better as a result. But Masvidal's a star, and and I think I saw you say it. Like, How does he not deserve a title shot or being on the short list at this point? It really de- depends on when Kamaru is healthy and when what happens between uh, Lawler and Colby. Which is because, crazy because Colby and Masvidal are teammates, or, you know, and then, then that's an added wrinkle to all this. Yeah, but they don't care. I mean, Masvidal is like, I love Colby, but I'll, he, his exact quote was, "I'll fight my mom right. for the championship." I just like, think, the, I just think the, and I know they'd fight each other and they do whatever. They're they're not willing to, they're not not willing to fight. I should say, but who gets first crack? What happens? It's fascinating, but he's right in the thick of it at the very least. Is Masvidal? One hundred percent, and it really just depends on what happens in that Colby Lawler fight because at the end of the day, if Colby Covington goes out there and submits, uh, what is it? If he submits, Waller if he submits Lawler, yeah, I was, yeah. I don't know why I was, right. I kept wanting to say Dos Anjos. If he submits Lawler in the first round in impressive fashion, and even because like if, if you stop Robbie Lawler, Colby Covington was the interim champion at one point, so he already should have fought for the title in the first place. But if it comes down to Dana White, at the end of the day, it is Dana White's. Uh, it's Dana White's say on who gets title shots. It's not because it, think about it, like the, the UFC championships aren't even really like they're not real they're not regulated by a like a governing body like (laughs) in boxing there's the wbo the wc like and and yeah that sucks trying to keep track of that but like what is the ufc championship it's just the guys that dana white says are gonna fight and then obviously the best ones hold the titles but it's not like it really like colby covington was the interim champion what did that mean at the end of the day nothing so we got it's gonna come down to dana white yeah we got guys carrying belts that that were interim like a year prior yeah, and it's fight. it's uh it's like 
it doesn't so it doesn't like the best the best fighter might not even have the belt like like i think right now it's pretty set after after a lot of back and forth like the lightweight pictures obviously a little scattered right now but it's going to come down to dana white and if they go dana you have to give masvidal or colby the title shot he's going to give it to masvidal yeah, well, I think we see both extremes, boxing versus, versus UFC, Well, where governing bodies can be annoying and having to go through all the rules and regulations. UFC, it's kind of cool, but it can also be the same, a different type of annoying that it's just basically Dana deciding who fights for what and not necessarily going in order. Super fights playing a factor in that as well. Anyway, props to Masvidal. Unbelievable performance. One of the best ones we've seen in a big-time fight. Flying knee five seconds in. All right, Jose Young's Money Mitch Effect. Two more fights to get to. The title fights and got to give props to where props is due. No doubt, no question. Greatest female fighter of all time. Amanda Nunez finishes Holly Holm with a head kick in the first round. Head kick and some punches after that. She's finished Holm. Cyborg. Pennington. Shevchenko, she's beaten twice. Rousey finished to eight. She's beaten everybody and most of them haven't even been close. There is no debate at this point. No, there's and if anyone's trying to debate uh, who the greatest female fighter of all time is, like you're dumb because the greatest female fighter of all time is Amanda Nunes. I get Ronda Rousey's importance. I think she's the most important fighter of all time. I don't think you can argue that women wouldn't even be in the UFC without her. Uh, I think one of her friends or camera or photographers calls her the reason as her nickname, which is which I'm a big fan of. Uh, but Amanda Nunes, in terms of in octagon ability is the most dominant and most talented fighter I've ever seen uh, from a female. She's been every former champion, present and past, outside of obviously the strawweights because strawweights ain't moving up to 135, 145, and there's no way in hell she can make 115. Uh, so, yeah, greatest fighter of all time. It's not even a question after this. Started to see some things these last couple fights, specifically how cerebral she is, beating home with the move that home perfects very well, and uh, really sensing when to make her move as well. Home fought a, fought a, a solid round up until that point. It was we, honestly Holmes's game plan was super weird. weird if you watch yeah. it, I think uh, everyone was expecting her to really uh, move around a lot like she does, but she was she stood in front of Amanda Nunes, which is very very odd to see. Yeah, I, I don't mean it's it's easier it's easy to say from from where we are like oh you should be doing this against Amanda Nunez. I don't know why that was the case either, but that was the plan that she went with, and it, it's hard to beat the best in anything, let alone someone inside a cage as dominant as Amanda Nunez. But I don't. I mean, Jose, I don't know what's left for her for Nunez. What is there to prove? What is there to do? How much more do you keep fighting when you're clearly clearly the goat and clearly on top of the game? She has to fight the cyborg again. She'll, so she'll get the winner of cyborg and Spence at one forty-five. I think that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's and that's in like a week, a couple weeks in Edmonton. I'll be there for that one. I think if mm-hmm. cyborg wins, which I expect her to do, they should have already made that rematch to begin with. Cyborg is the greatest until Amanda. Cyborg was the greatest female fighter I'd ever seen in terms of inside the octagon. She had beaten everyone. She was the most dominant. She was not only was she beating them, she was running through them. Uh, so I'd say if, if they have to rematch again and if Amanda wins again, like that's a wrap. Like it's already a wrap now, but like that's just cherry on the top. And then she has to fight. I think she should fight the winner of Jermaine Durandamy and Aspen Ladd on the UFC Sacramento card this weekend at Bantamweight because Aspen Ladd's been on an absolute tear. She was supposed to fight Holly Holm before Holly Holm got bumped up to fight Amanda Nunes. And for all everything we talk about, Amanda Nunes beating all these champions, like I just said before, she hasn't beaten Jermaine Durandamy, and people forget that Jermaine Durandamy is the first ever featherweight champion in UFC history. Right. She just got the title stripped for inact- inactivity and too many injuries. So if she can beat uh, Cyborg again and then defend her title against Jermaine Durandamy, if she wins, like that's Aspen Ladd's no pushover, and this is five rounds to work with. Uh, she, so she, Amanda, in my opinion, Amanda's not hurting for opponents right now. Yeah, no, I she's she's not. There's so many talented female fighters, but it wouldn't. I mean, I don't know how much longer she's gonna want to fight. Would be my point. Like, well, I agree because she also wants to have kids with uh, Nina, her her girlfriend and current UFC fighter. Yeah, I mean, it's she is clearly established herself, and this is all gonna be how much she loves fighting, which is clearly a lot, but. We'll see. Props to her. She's also not taking damage, so it's not like she's like too banged up to, <laughs> know, that's to stop. Like, what was her last two fights? A combined 
one round. So I'm, it's not like she's uh, hurting for – not she's in these wars or anything. I wouldn't mind seeing another Shevchenko fight. I know she's oh, beat her twice. But 100%. I would kind of – I wouldn't necessarily dispute, maybe dispute the second one. But. I would. I think Valentina <laughs> won the second one. Yeah, I would I would agree, but I don't think it was like total controversy. No. Like, you know, and if as, you watch their, their first fight was three rounds, uh, and Nunes won the first two, and then Valentina dominated the third round. So that just shows you, like, v- Valentina was 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 well not well. I, that's not a good word, but uh, if that was five rounds, uh, I would I think uh, Valentina would have won that fight. Yeah, I I think that there are some big fights coming, so we'll have to see with that with those female divisions. But all right, Jose, last thing on this card: John Jones, the Santos fight, Diego yeah. Santos. Speaking of uh, some decisions that could have gone either way. There was a lot to make of this fight. First of all, Santos just destroying his knee in the middle of the fight. Jones getting banged up as well, needing to be carried out of the octagon as well. Jones admittedly fighting a boring style for fear of getting knocked out and almost costing himself the title, winning a split decision in five rounds. Two judges had to 48-47 for him. Off the get-go, do you agree that Jones was the winner of this fight? Yeah, I had it uh, three rounds to two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought so did I. Santos won, won one and five, and John clearly won three and four. And then round two was 50-50 for me. So I think that second round is really what, what will seal it. Uh, I did slightly give the favor to John, but I had it three rounds to two. But I was doing my post show, my live chat, uh, and I was reading the comments because it was it was a live stream, so the comments were coming in real time. And I go, uh, what were your guys' scorecards? And there was – a lot, and when I say a lot, I mean a vast majority of people saying one two five Santos. In ter- so in rounds one two five, mm-hmm. so it's I thought it was clearly John. A lot of people thought it was clearly John, but I tell you what, after that fight, I'm seeing a lot of fans saying Santos won. Yeah, I, and I don't know if this was just a matter of him doing the De La Hoya Trinidad approach, just taking rounds <laughs> off that he thought he he had, or he. he I don't. He had I don't think John would do that. Yeah, and so I'm wondering. I know there was the fear of this. Is I guess I should point this out, Jose. This is when I think the fear of game playing too much can actually be a bad thing. He said he was afraid of, or not afraid, but just more fearsome of the knockout that he had a specific strategy involved. He left. I mean, it looked like he was leaving the door open a little more than a John Jones fight necessarily does. Now, all credit to Santos's punching power, but this wasn't the this wasn't a great John Jones performance, and I think even he would admit that. Yeah, but I know I know John is very much in favor of fighting his opponent. I think it was it's it's actually what he loves to do. He fights his opponents in their style. So he fought. If you watch that Glover to Sheriff fought, it was all in your face against the octagon, like dirty boxing up close. You watch him fight Alexander Gustin the first time, it's all like hands and foot movement and kicks, like kickboxing, boxing style, like Dutch kickboxing. And then if you watch him fight Cormier the first time, he he just out-wrestled Daniel Cormier. He out-wrestled an Olympic wrestling uh, captain. So I think it's, it's a combination of John being aware that Santos can KO him, but he said it himself, like it's kind of an ego thing for him. Like he wants to fight these people at their game. And I think he's a crazy man, but <laughs> especially like he stood in front of Tiago Santos for five rounds. Like most people die doing that. Yeah. So I, I, I commend him for, for taking the challenge. But if I'm his coach, I'm like, what are you doing, man? You're going to get your head kicked off. Yeah. And maybe look, Maybe what saved him was that knee injury because that was brutal to watch on the replays and throughout oh, yeah. the fight it was tough. It was I'll say this as this the casual fan, it was tough to watch the fight go on. I'd I'd almost rather see just a brutal knockout than a guy struggling on one fully functional knee. Props to Santos for finishing the fight and winning the fifth round, but you got to feel for him because he had his chance to win this fight, and whether or not it would have happened, it just sucks that. A major knee injury was the outcome of this fight where he's going to be out a long time. Well, I, did you see what the injury was? Yeah, it's like every ligament is torn in his knee. It's every single – it's ACL, MCL, PCL, and meniscus all got torn. So it's like, come on, man. Was that all like, – no, there was nothing pre, right? Like it was all in the – uh, Not to my knowledge. Yeah, uh, you thought. can kind of tell – you can kind of – like watching it, you can kind of see where it happened. It was pretty early on in the fight, but – 
not he 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 finished that fight out and then at the post fight press conference uh he had to be wheelchaired up to the stage and then he couldn't even walk down the stairs back wheelchair and keep in mind when i say stairs it was maybe two steps uh so it was it was difficult to watch but he wasn't complaining uh john was also in a wheelchair so i personally enjoyed the fight cuz i like seeing like those crazy uh Tact, like tactical matchups, but I get it. People want to see the greatest uh, dominate. Well, I know all prayers up to Santos and making a full recovery. Jones is at a point now where wants to fight in December. I know we talked about how many times he would fight this year. December looks to be the target. What's next for him? And in your mind, Jose, and what do you think? You know, because I, I got to think that bouncing back is going to be the key. I know he won, but getting back to fighting and, and, and really having a dominant performance is going to be on the forefront. What do you think's next for John Jones? I think John is really smart in the fact that he wants to hear what the fans want to see. Uh, I was surprised he took this fight with Santos, and a lot I think a lot of people were. And he said, I asked what people want, and they chose Santos, so that's who I'm fighting. So props to him for a lot. In this world of super fights and these mega fights and people holding out for more money, John Jones lost so much time fighting. Uh, to his own idiocy that he said he wants to kind of give back to the fans that have stuck with him. So he's taking a lot of fights. and He wants to be super active. And we spoke to him in Atlanta uh, in March uh, in Las Vegas before he fought uh, Anthony Smith. And he said his goal was to be the to be considered the greatest fighter of all time. Right now, he considers himself one of the most dominant. He can't say he's the greatest yet. Uh, I We asked him, I go, what would it take for you to be the greatest? He says, I want to go four or five and oh in 2019 with impressive performances he has obviously a very high chance i'd probably i'd probably favor him to go 4-0 or 3-0 in 2019 uh yeah 4-0 if you count the uh the fight at the beginning of the year against gus but if he has another performance like he did against smith and santos i still consider him the most talented fighter of all time i've ever seen but in terms of greatest because obviously you and i know there's a difference between most skilled and greatness I still consider George St. Pierre the greatest fighter of all time. Fair, uh, yeah. If if John goes 4-0 in 2019, and because he, he has guys like Johnny Walker, Jan Blakovic, Dominic Reyes, uh, Alexander Ratchik. Like if he beats two, three of those guys and then goes up to heavyweight and wins the heavyweight championship, there's no argument. But right now I consider a 1A, 1B, but I slightly favor George. It's fair. He's got to he's gotta have those championship-level performances. Obviously, most skilled and greatest difference, but still time left. And, and Jones will remind you that. There's still time. He's still writing his book, his history book. So future's going to be interesting. Hey, Jose Youngs, before we wrap this up, you were at that summer press conference for the UFC, getting ready for all the pay-per-views. What should we expect? Outside of, you know, Steve and Cormier, too, which I'm obviously going to be geeked up for. What are some other good ones as well? I mean, you got UFC 240, you got Frankie and Max, you got Cyborg and Spence on that card. Uh, that's up in Edmonton. And then you got obviously got Nate and Anthony uh, on that co-main event of DC Cormier. Uh, I mean, DC Cormier, DC Stipe. Uh, you got Habib versus Dustin, which obviously, if you look at that whole card, it's not the most stacked card top to bottom, but like that main event is a freaking worth $65 on its own. Uh, the 243. You have in my what in my eyes in my mind is the fight I'm most anticipated for, and that's uh, Israel Stylebender, Adesanya, and Robert Robert Whitaker for the unified middleweight championship. Uh, Robert Whitaker is obviously the reigning champ, but he's been so hurt and he got sick uh, in his last fight that he's now Israel Adesanya is now the interim champion. And there was no love loss between those guys. That's a uh, someone from New Zealand fighting someone from uh, Sydney because. Uh, Israel Asanya from New Zealand and uh, Robert Whitaker lives in Sydney. And I interviewed Israel Asanya this past week because there's we believe the fight's most likely in Australia, probably mm. Melbourne. Wow. Uh, but there's nothing official yet. Uh, that's just what we hear. And I asked Israel, like, where's this fight going to be? And he says, I want Sydney because I want to beat him up in front of his family. Ooh. And I was like, my God, that's <laughs> savage. So I yes. am so very hyped. I think take the belts out. Take the New Zealand versus Australia uh, storylines. Take out the not – I don't want to say bad blood. It's just a lot of trash talk. Take all that out of the equation. I just think those are the two best middleweights in the world. And I would pay $100 just to watch them spar. So (laughs) belts are cool. 
giant stadiums are cool. Trash talk is cool. I just, at the end of the day, I want to see high-level elite martial arts. And that there's nothing better than Robert Whitaker versus Israel Adesanya right now. I'm glad we're going to get Frankie in Holloway. I'm, I'm yeah, glad speaking we're about it. high level martial arts, just, my it's, God. it's time. It's it's time. We've waited long enough. And 100. Uh, percent And if yeah. Max wins, he's the greatest featherweight. I think. Mm, yeah, a lot at stake there. I think it's great too that the Khabib Poirier fights in Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, which is uh, another added wrinkle to this as well in that new stadium. So yep. A lot to be there. Uh, this was fun, Jose. Always fun chatting UFC for you. I think one thing we can always agree on, we got to get rid of unprotected chair shots in wrestling, right? Oh, I was going to say, we didn't. next time we're on, we should talk about the G1. That finally kicked off this past Ooh, week. Yeah, I, I got to research on that. I do, I do. But uh, AW is looking solid. Uh, some things I would change. I hope Cody's okay because, my God, that was brutal. But, I think he's okay, but I have a lot of ideas and theories for how the G1 should finish, but that's for another podcast. Wow, well, a little New Japan Pro Wrestling teaser. That's good. All right, catch him in MMA fighting. Jose Young, thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, that's it for today's show. Huge thanks again to both guests, Todd Robinson and Jose Youngs. And a reminder that you can find every episode of The Money Mitch Effect on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect and it pops right up. And you never know, if you come on The uh, Money Mitch Effect, you could do great things like, I don't know, win the All-Star Game MVP. Shout, shout out again to Shane Bieber. Just an incredible performance for the Cleveland Indian pitcher. Striking out the side, winning the MVP in Cleveland. You can go back in the archives and find that episode where uh, we chatted with him a little while back. But a great guy, happy for him. Happy that the Indians put on a great show for the All-Star Game. Follow me on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. And check out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page for all those episodes as well. I'm Mitch Michaels, as well as the Money Mitch Effect. We'll be talking Wimbledon, recapping who won both the men's and women's titles next week, as well as some other summer sports talk talk topics as well trying to get my words tied here on this morning but a lot to talk about next week thank you for listening this was the money mitch effect until next time keep enjoying sports